welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay, I guess I'll start. Um, and uh, I don't know if anyone's going to keep time, but I'll just time myself. I'll go about 20 minutes. And, and you guys can hear me? We can hear you, okay. Yes. Great. All right. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Gardner, and I'm a psychoholic. Um, my sobriety date is November 17, 2013. So, um, God willing, on Friday, I hope to have four years of sexual sobriety. It's pretty crazy. I never thought um, I would be able to say that. Um, certainly not when I was acting out. Certainly not before I realized I had a problem, and um, and even uh, when I was in the rooms counting days, the idea of being sober by the definition of SA for more than um, a few days seemed absolutely absurd and crazy to me. And um, every once in a while, I think back to those those early days, and I just think that I've been completely transformed um, because I have by uh, virtue of the steps um, and having worked all the steps <laughs> in order with a sponsor who'd worked them before and, um, and all of you in the rooms, the fellowship and uh, going to a lot of meetings, doing the work and, uh, and accepting that um, a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And he has, he really, really has. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, just, just now I was, you know, I was sort of frantically trying to, <laughs> plan my, my qualification, you know, because I'm suddenly determined that, you know, I'm not qualified and I don't know what I'm going to say and I, I have to, you know, freak out and, you know, feel bad about myself. So I pulled out my whole, I have a whole file folder of, uh, of just says SA. It's just all this old step work and, you know, my step in action books and all this stuff I've, you know, written down over the years. And I went through my step one, two, and three questions um, listed out, and clearly it's not the first time I wrote them because the first time my sponsor came back with, "Look, you can't just write yes and no answers. This is a <laughs> this is a thorough process. We need to we need to get down uh, we need to get down to the nitty gritty about what happened and what it's like, and you know, and what 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 happened and what's what it's going to be like." <clears throat> so um, I went through, and um, I you know to be honest, quite quite uh, thrilled with what I was what I was reading, like. Even I don't remember when this was, but just very much. Um, it, whenever I wrote this, I was truly uh, committed to recovery. But I, I also noticed that in my step two questions, um, towards the end, um, you know, it asks, um, "Do I believe that self knowledge will cure me?" Um, and I guess I didn't really understand the question. I just wrote, "I do believe that self knowledge will cure me." Um, you know, and then the rest of my 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 answer is is like I think a little more. I don't know, open-minded than, than I think that is. But the idea I've learned now is that, no, it really won't. Like, the whole point of step two is is that um, it's not it's not me. It's not my own knowledge that 
that keeps me sober and cures me. No, it's it's giving it all away, taking taking um, my hands off the steering wheel and letting you know a uh, power greater than myself restore me to sanity. And then incidentally, in my next question, um, number nine, do I think that I'm capable of ever restoring myself to sanity? I wrote, I believe I am capable of restoring myself to sanity. I know I can do it, but I'm coming to realize that it will take a long, long time and a lot of effort. Um, <laughs> so anyone who, you know, has been around for a while hopefully understands that that's, you know, early kind of crazy thinking. Um, you know, it's not, it's not me. It's not, uh, it's not about me and what I'm capable of doing and how smart I am and how aware I am of my powerlessness. It's, it's, that's part of it, but, you know, it's much more God giving myself to a power greater than myself, um, no matter how powerful or smart I think I am. Um, so, you know, this is, that's a sort of, I think, is a good way to just kind of get into this because, you know, my best thinking got me, you know, uh, where I am. It got me, you know, um, walking into the rooms desperate and about to lose my wife um, uh, over seven years ago. Um, I'm in New York City. I live, I'm born and raised in New York City, and uh, I'll just give a bit of a history. And sorry if I jump around a bit. Um, just, uh, you know, gratefully, you know, after seven years, I, I sort of, seven years in this program and then about five in AA, um, I, you know, I, I really uh, have tackled the, the big book and all the, um, all the various uh, materials and, you know, and in recovery, I've, I've kind of, you know, learned a lot. So a lot of this stuff kind of, um, I, you know, I believe recovery and uh, it comes up randomly. So forgive me if I, you know, hop around a bunch. <clears throat> but um, some of my history is, you know, I, I was born and raised in Manhattan, New York City. Um, had a really great childhood, great parents, a lot of stability, a lot of support, a lot of love. I was diagnosed when I was seven years old with Tourette syndrome. Um, and I don't know if anyone knows about that, but it's a neurological disorder um, that you are born with. It makes you have these uncontrollable tics, we call them, these sort of movements and sounds. And you, you know, you, mine, as you'll hear, and they have already, is like a throat clearing, like this. <laughs> Forgive me if that's, uh, you know, hurts anyone's ears. Anyone's ears, I'm pulling the phone away. But it's, uh, you know, obviously it's 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 complicated. It's difficult. I've had very um, I've had really embarrassing tics in the past, and, you know, for the kid in school and just out in the streets and, you know, subways and public places in New York City, it made it very easy to feel um, different, you know, get bullied, get, you know, just treated pretty horribly. Um, and, uh, you know, and also just the, my, the way I think is just, it's just sort of different. Um, but it's very, it was very easy for me to just feel like I was <clears throat> not at all like anyone else and never would be. Um, and, you know, part of that is eh, maybe a little true, but um, I think more it was a way, great way for, you know, my disease to sort of creep in and be like, you know what, you're right. You're different. None of these people will ever understand you, and they're all against you, and you're better than them. You suffer more, and you deserve to treat yourself to some twisted version of pleasure. Um, so to go into some of my, you know, early experiences with lust, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I remember just various things like playing with GI Joes and sort of like having this kind of fascination with, you know, forcing the male GI Joes on the, you know, the female, uh, female GI Joes and kind of getting a thrill from that. Um, and also, there's something about it that felt kind of isolating in a very comforting way. And also, like, 
I enjoy the feeling of control and obviously the feeling of, you know, sex to some degree, even though I was too young to really understand what that was. <laughs> a lot of, uh, um, you know, flirtation and, and or just sort of like obsession with like babysitters, probably some teachers, stuff like that. Um, and I always had this, I had this, this strange fantasy that I would be, <laughs> that I would have this weird little, uh, like container underneath the school bus, like <clears throat> like a little uh, private um, room down like in the chassis by the street that like was like plexiglass that I could be comfortably private, but amidst, you know, the whole world around me. And I, no one would know I was there. I could just be alone. And I also would have this fantasy of like one of my babysitters being in there with me. Um, and, you know, I think to some degree I got... Uh, a lot of my ideas about sex and lust and just, you know, what I could get from women from my dad um, and probably from, you know, movies and whatnot as a kid. But, you know, just like as an alcoholic, I mean, I, <laughs> whether it's nature or nurture is not really my department. I, I'm, I'm a powerless sexaholic right now, and, I, and, I, um, and I'm not necessarily interested in why. I just know that I can't. The amount of lust I can handle is zero amount of uh, alcohol I can handle is, is none. Um, that's just how it is for me. And, and uh, my life is a lot easier now knowing that. <clears throat> fast forward a bit, um, I, I had a relatively healthy, you know, romantic dating relationship. I had, you know, girlfriends relatively young, you know, in my kind of adolescent and teen years. Um, I had serious girlfriends in high school and in college. <laughs> I I never cheated. I, I was very much in love with every single one of them. <laughs> um, and when I was in high school, I not during a relationship, but I I don't really know where it came from, but I suddenly had this obsession, this belief that I was gay. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I don't know because I grew up in an artistic family, and there were you know it was I was taught that you know. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with being gay, and we had a lot of, you know, gay friends and family and stuff. I don't know what, but um, I do know now that I'm not. I'm married a woman, and I, you know, I realized later that that was a way for me to get out of intimacy with women because I was sexually attracted to women. I was, you know, straight, but I was committed to this weird idea, this sort of fantasy that somehow I wasn't, <laughs> and um, and I would... uh I would be in relationships and not tell the girl. And then eventually I just, the pressure was, would mount and I would bring it, I would admit it and they were sort of horrified, but they would think, well, what are you talking about? I don't see, you're not gay. And I'd be like, yeah, I know, I love you, but I just, I got to figure this out. And it would be my, like, my, you know, my little escape uh, hatch, even though it, it, it was, I was, it was tremendously painful. But I've learned, you know, in recovery and therapy and whatever else, but that, you know, I am afraid of intimacy, even though it's what I want. Um, it's one of those weird paradoxes of the disease. <clears throat> um, moving forward, you know, my my disease really centered around isolation, around phone sex, around pornography, masturbation. Um, when I discovered masturbation, I was like off and running, and um, I had to do it all the time, um, <clears throat> three, four times a day. Um, I remember once my parents. Uh, bring, we, we, we were at some storage facility in Long Island um, that was outside. It was actually a former, like, um, army barracks or storage or something. So it was, like, all these 
kind of large garage spaces, spaces, and then this old airport, and this kind of a lot of kind of like a natural. Doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> I remember I kind of roamed around, and they were they were working in the storage space, and I and I just was struck by the the impulse, and I went behind a tree and masturbated just right there. And I remember that because, you know, it just seemed kind of unmanageable. Like, you know, I could have been seen. I could have been caught. I mean, potentially got in trouble, but I needed to masturbate. And I remember that uh, having the same sensation in college when um, I was first, you know, using the Internet for pornography. I didn't really use the Internet before college. Um, and, you know, as, as most of you probably know, I mean, that was, you know, what a great, uh, tool of isolation for a sex addict. Um, you know, just an infinite variety of video and imagery and God knows what else. Um, and, you know, in pure isolation and privacy, just like, you know, a perfect concoction for our, our disease to, you know, just get stronger with our, um, you know, complete cooperation. And I remember um, being in school and class somewhere um, and some people talking and somebody saying that he had a friend or there was somebody else who would would masturbate before running to class and kind of like make himself late. And I did that every day. I mean, the idea of leaving the dorm for the whole room and not being able to masturbate was terrifying to me. And the friend and the guy saying this and sort of laughing and everyone laughing and being like, you know, why not just wait? Like, if it's going to be unpleasant, if you're going to be in a rush, like, what's the point? You know, and I and I uh, and I remember thinking, well, I do that. You know, like I, I, I maybe there's something wrong with me, and then feeling shame about it. Um, you know, but that that just continued, and I kind of like learned quickly that mess that but pornography is not good for me. Um, you know, I, I certainly couldn't stop. I certainly would would look at it when I didn't even have any interest in it. I just sort of felt like, well, maybe I'll feel something I'm not don't normally feel. You know, and that to me is like, I don't know, scraping the resin. Like as a pothead, you know, you're just trying to find like, you know, some particular high, like some particular feeling that you haven't had yet. And that would lead me into darker and darker um, examples of pornography. Um, Thankfully, I didn't go beyond the realm of legality. Um, And, uh, but the feelings were pretty awful. Just the misogyny that you see in there, it was just awful. Um, sex is a big part of my story from much younger than that, you know, probably starting at 10, 11 or 12 at home, calling phone sex lines, talking to women. I don't know what age they thought I was, but it's kind of depressing to think that they would talk to me. Um, and then get, you know, being confronted by my dad with a phone bill and having to admit what I'd done and then, and then just paying him. And then it got to the point that I couldn't stop, even though I knew he was going to find out. And um, he would confront me, and I would just drop, God, I mean, 50, 100 bucks on the table, and then that would be that. Um, and uh, that's that's certainly unmanageable, if you ask me, and certainly powerless. Um, and that's just progressed and regressed, and I got out of college and met um, a woman who later became my wife. And even in a, in a sexually active relationship, you know, I, I, I really needed to look at porn and needed to call phone sex lines. I needed to masturbate a lot. And, um, that's why, you know, the idea that, you know, being a, being in a relationship will save me from my disease is, is nonsense. It's just, it's just not relevant. Um, 
And, uh, you know, and I stayed uh, faithful to my then girlfriend, um, now wife. We were, you know, I was 2002 and we've been together ever since. But uh, when I was apart from her again, I went to grad school for acting and um, was away from her for about two and a half years. And at some point in there, I discovered that I didn't have to call phone sex lines and spend money on some, you know, meaningless thing. I was totally tired of, of pornography didn't like what it was doing to me. And at some point, I basically approached this girl on the phone somehow. We'd been out that night, and then I talked to her on the phone, and then I led her into phone sex. And it was so exciting because it was free. (laughs) And it was someone I knew, so it was kind of more real. It was like, you know, getting closer to the edge of the envelope of, of, you know, being with another woman and cheating, even though I prided myself on um, mono- uh, being monogamous. And that just, that just, I was obsessed with that. And so that, that grew and, and developed for a few years um, into my marriage. And, and I got to the point where I would, you know, just be this feverishly seeking women who I wasn't necessarily attracted to or what I didn't necessarily like but I have a feeling either they were attracted to me or they could be manipulated into either chatting online or phone sex or texting or whatever, trading pictures. I needed, I needed to have power over them. I needed to, I needed to be able to, you know, fulfill the urges of my disease. I wasn't in control and I would do it. And then afterwards I would feel devastated. I would, I would see my wife in the morning. I'd kiss her. Hello. She was perfectly in love with me. And I was devastated. I was so horribly ashamed. I felt, I knew that she would be devastated by this. Um, I knew that it was kind of like cheating. Um, and I would swear I wouldn't do it again. And a few days would pass and I would start to forget the pain and I would get that urge again, and I would remember that I probably shouldn't do it, but I couldn't withstand the urge. I couldn't stop. I could not stop. And I would keep doing it and keep doing it, and I would use her computer sometimes to go on social media and look, try to, like, uh, link up with women, and occasionally I would log out of her, my account on her computer and think, I'm really playing with fire here. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I could easily get caught. You know, and I was drinking at the time, so the the, the depth of my disease took me to, you know, uh, you know, my wife getting tired going to bed, and I was saying, okay, I'll be in the second, and just having the computer going, having a drink, and thinking, I'm not going to look at this, I'm not going to go on porn, I'm not going to try to interact with a woman, and then doing it, and then being up for three hours till two, three, four in the morning. I think once she came out at almost dawn, I said, what's going on? And I, I just said, oh, I don't know, I'm just on Facebook, and sorry for mentioning an exact site. Um, and she didn't realize it then she was going to out of it. And thankfully I was able to kind of hide what I was doing or not thankfully. But, um, you know, this is, it just, it just, it was just self will run riot. And, um, I, uh, I, I eventually was, you know, up really late, probably drinking martinis at Tuesday night and, you know, God knows what hour I had my wife's laptop in my lap because, my computer's a desktop, and I didn't want to sit at the computer. I wanted to lie in bed next to my wife sleeping and act out with women. And at some point later, I was I switched to my desktop, 
And the next morning, I wake up to my wife saying, what is this on my computer? And she started reading what I had left there that I had forgotten to pull it out. And the jig was up. And I was caught. And I had to face pretty serious consequences. And I almost lost my wife. I remember her that night when we really got into it saying, I want to take our wedding picture and smash it over your head. And I was devastated. And, um, you know, I, I, I even told her that night, I think I have a problem. Um, she was, we, I didn't see her for about a week. She wouldn't let me in the house. Um, she, she basically said you had, um, real time, you know, uh, sexual fantasy with another person who wasn't me. That's cheating. You know, I don't care that you didn't touch them. I don't care that you weren't in the same room. And I had to, I had to admit she was right. Um, and, uh, you know, this thing I prided myself on being faithful, I just, you know, slipped away. Um, eventually, we, you know, saw each other again. Um, I remember our anniversary, actually, October 18th, 2010. We went out for dinner. We, like, tried to make it work. It was sad. It was painful. But we, like, you know, we were committed. She was committed to giving me another chance. And we went to couples therapy. And a couple therapists said, Gardner, I think you need to be in a room with other people with this problem. And I said, what do you mean? What problem? You know, and she explained that there are 12 step fellowships for this. And I, I, you know, I actually was willing for the, for, right from the start. And, uh, I found my way to an essay meeting in New York. It's still my home group on, a uh, West 59th street, um, St. Paul's, uh, 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 St. Paul the apostle. And I walked in and I, I just wanted to stop looking at porn. I didn't know anything about no masturbation. And once I learned that, I was like, whoa, I, <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. You guys are crazy. But, and I also didn't think I belonged. I was like, look, I, I, I've never been with a prostitute and I've never gone to a massage parlor. I've never cheated. Like, I don't know if this is really, I don't want to like, you know, I, I, I don't want to belittle what you guys go through by talking about my stuff. And, and, uh, luckily everyone assured me I was in the right place. And, uh, it was the first time I really heard anyone talk about lust. They're like, this room is for people who want to be free from lust. I had no idea what that meant. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, control and enjoy what I had. I wanted to be more normal. And um, it took me a very long time of sobriety and being in the program to let go of the, the idea that I could control what was going on. Like I just read you in those those questions, you know, that my self-will, my knowledge, whatever it is, will restore me to sanity. Um, and you know what? I've learned that this takes time, this recovery stuff. Um, you know, I was really grateful when I first came in that that all types, different types of people, mostly men, some women, mostly men in the rooms would, were relating to me, were, uh, you know, telling me that, you know, there's hope, you know, there's life without sex. Like, you don't have to have sex as a man. You don't have to masturbate. This is not some, you know, release that you have to have or you'll die. And they also said, keep coming. It gets easier and your life will ex uh, expand in ways you never dreamed imaginable. And they were absolutely right. Um, and I got a sponsor after probably seven months or something, which I don't recommend. And uh, it was very hard. He asked me to take some really hard looks at myself to do some things I didn't want to do, like make phone calls to other sex addicts, <laughs> go to meetings. Um, and I was kicking and screaming, but uh, I, it's exactly what I needed. 
and now having worked through the steps once in SA and once in AA and having sponsees of my own and, and, you know, getting through some real discomfort, I have learned that I, that there is a beautiful life in recovery and sobriety and sobriety is not the same as recovery. Um, staying sober is wonderful. It's, it's what has to happen first. But if I don't work the steps with a sponsor, um, I'm really not recovering. I'm not really changing because I'm not going to work on all the stuff that made me act out. And this is why I think SA is kind of the best of the S programs because it really, it's, it's not really the only one, but it's, it's the one that really goes to work on the lust. Um, I go to other meetings in New York. I think they're great, but I, I would not be comfortable in a place where it were up to me what I could and could not do because that's not sobriety as far as I'm concerned. If I'm, you know, if I'm allowing myself to intrigue or flirt with women, if I'm allowing myself to, you know, masturbate occasionally, but not do this or that, I just, I would, I would be dead. I would be dead, literally. Um, this is a life and death, uh, um, uh, uh, um, I'm in a position where I, I, my life is at stake. And if I don't take the first step every day and do the things that I need to do, like call my sponsors, um, go to a meeting, uh, drop to my knees and pray to a power greater than myself, which I choose to call God, meditate, um, and check in with other addicts and, and sex addicts and alcoholics, um, I, will, I will go back to my disease in a second flat. And I, will, and I will lose my wife. I will lose my home. I will lose everything I hold dear. And I don't want to do that because I love my, my life now. And, um, you know, to give you some perspective, I mean, back before I was in the rooms, obviously I was, you know, living this sexual, you know, double life. But also I... You know, I was in deep shame about my Tourette's. Um, I didn't want to talk about it. I was afraid that if I kind of was like public about it, I would it would affect my acting career. And eventually, in recovery, um, I've come to own it. I'm very public about it. I have a one man show that I'm performing now about my life with Tourette's here in New York. It's getting really well received. Um, I am on the board of the New York City chapter, the Tourette Association of America. I've done TED talks. And it's all recovery. You know, all this stuff comes from recovery. The service I do with young people with the disorder. Um, and it's all about my, uh, my, um, my changing myself through uh, taking some hard looks at myself. So to anyone counting days or coming back, I recommend, uh, you know, getting a sponsor, working the steps, and really taking this stuff seriously. Um, and I'm sorry I took a little bit more time than I expected, but I hope someone got something out of this, and I uh, look forward to hearing you all. Thanks. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.